but it can shift from God wrote the Bible to no humans wrote the Bible to no the Bible the word of God is actually just human words about mm. God. Yes. And then all of a sudden the authority is just gone. Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. I have another deconstruction, reconstruction story for you, and I'm so excited for you to meet my guest, Dave Stovall, formerly of the bands Waverly and Audio Adrenaline. I'm sure many of uh, our, our listeners and viewers remember those bands. So Dave, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for, for being here and being willing to share your story with us. Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Well, great. We're going to talk through your story, uh, but before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself, your life, your family, what you what you're doing these days, and okay. uh, and then we'll get into to your story. Okay, cool. So, uh, currently, I'll just start from where I'm at now. I, I lead worship at a church called Harpeth Christian Church here in Franklin, Tennessee, and um, I'm married to uh, Summer. We've been married for oh my gosh, twelve years. 12 years this awesome. year. And we have three kids. Uh, Bear is five. Birdie is two and a half. And Basil, which, you know, we realize now what a mistake that was to name them all three B letter names. Oh. Because like, golly, we can't get it straight. Basil <laughs> is, um, she's two and a half months. So she's like brand new baby. Aww. We're like, you know, we, you know, we had the baby and then we went through the phase of life where it's like, okay, he's starting to, you know, get things on his own. We can have a like normal life again. Then we had another baby mm. and then did the same thing. So now we've started completely back over. <laughs> oh man, I'm telling so, you, it just takes, I mean, it's like a whole thing. It's like, it's like a zombie that whole first year. Yeah. At least I oh was. my gosh. We're oh. trying to like still be, you know, good parents to the older two, but it's like a struggle. It's like, I'm so tired. <laughs> I was trying to explain to, to Bear and Birdie that. And I'm like, why am I doing this? They're children. I'm like, look, when daddy doesn't sleep, daddy can't play with you. He doesn't feel like it. It's so funny how that works. <laughs> But so that's who I am now. But I'm I'm originally from Alabama. I grew up in a tiny town. I mean, like when I say tiny, like three thousand people, tiny. And uh, went to a Southern Baptist church, and you know, had had fun growing up at that church, and uh, it served me well, you know, growing up in in a church like that. But I always uh, was just felt different than everyone else. I'd like feel like I had to, to do things differently than everyone else. Like I was. The only one that I knew that like wanted to leave my city to like go be an entertainer, mm. you know, back in the eighties, I was like all about Michael Jackson. So I was like, I'm going to be a singer and a dancer. And so like, that was just a weird <laughs> thing, you know, that nobody else was like that, but that was always my goal was to, to be artsy or to create art and then leave. And um, so I was always different from the people in my church. And you don't about, sound think, like you're from Alabama. Well, that's because I hid my accent when I was growing up. I was like, I don't want to sound like these rednecks. So I'm going to pretend like I'm from California or I had cousins that lived in Franklin, actually. And I would pretend to to be or sound like them, even though Franklin's still the South. I don't yeah. know what I was thinking, but um, I spent all that time just, you know, feeling different and, and trying to do things in a different way. <laughs> I think back to the, the Southern Baptist Church, what they must have thought about me, because I was like on fire for the Lord mm. in my high school years. I was like the youth group leader, but it was the nineties. So I was like, I painted my fingernails and like had long grunt, you know, grunge yeah. hair and big baggy jeans. Like I bet they were like, I wish this kid was just normal. 
But um, <laughs> when, I, when I graduated high school and went to college, um, I got involved in the BSU there. And that's when I really had a crisis of faith. And that's kind of what this is all about. Like the yeah. blogs that I've been writing are about that journey, kind of like deconstructing, even though I didn't, wouldn't have called it that back then. Yeah. But um, so I went to school there. This is uh, in college in Northeast Mississippi Community College, just a junior college. And I figured out a way to spread out that two-year college into three years. And um, then we, me and my friends at the time decided it'd be a good idea to stop going to college and start touring. So we, we toured the country um, as a pop punk band, a Christian pop punk band, and uh, got a record deal and ended up moving to Nashville. We were signed to um, Flickr Records back then. I remember Flickr, Mark, yeah. Yeah. When Mark Stewart and Will McGinnis, when they owned it, we got signed and changed our name to Waverly. And we toured for a long time doing that. And when that ended, you know, I tried to walk away from music. I was just like, you know, God, I, I don't get why this dead end just happened. So I'm done with it. I'm not going to write anything. I'm not going to do anything. And then somehow I found myself pulled back into it by being involved with Audio Adrenaline. And then when that ended, I was kind of confused on what God wanted me to do. And so I just started, I was working at the mall all throughout in Waverly and in Audio A just to kind of supplement income. And we were thinking about moving home, but uh, that's when Harpeth Christian Church kind of found me. Um, through the audio adrenaline lead singer at the time. And I just kind of started following God towards that church on not sure what I was going to do. And now, hey, you were, totally, you were already like, you were already deconstructed by this point, kind of into progressive Christianity. And we'll drill, yeah. we'll drill down a little bit deeper into your story in a moment, but this is kind of like the, the broad overview. So you find yourself at Harpeth and are, are you, a, are you a progressive Christian at this time or? At that point, I may not have said it out loud to everyone, but internally, yes, I was a progressive Christian and I would have I identify myself as a universalist at that time. Um, and so when uh, Bobby, Bobby Harrington's my lead pastor at Harpeth, when he was like interviewing me or whatever, going out to lunch to see if I was going to be a good fit, part of me wasn't really sure that I like wanted to be a worship leader. And so I like said things to sort of try to push them away. Like you don't want me, you know, <laughs> like I was really vulnerable just about like sin struggles that I'd had. Cause I wanted them to know who I was. And I was like really open with like books that I read. And it was just, he was like, what books do you read? And I was like, Rob Bell, you know, <laughs> right off the bat, like this is who I read. And, um, Somehow they still thought I was the guy. I'm not sure why. I, I think well, I know Bobby, and Bobby's got such a heart for discipleship. He was like, "Yes, I can. I yeah. can disciple this guy." <laughs> he he told me later what he saw in me was that I was teachable, mm. and we'll you know we'll we'll talk through and get to that point. But that's exactly where I was in that moment. But I was trying to be vulnerable with them about this is who I am. Yeah, I don't want to be a pastor or or a minister that is not truthful up front and gets going and is, you know, making income for his family and then starts feeling trapped because nobody knows who he really is. Mm. I just wanted them to know up front, this is who I am. And you just need to know that before you get invested in me. And uh, I'm so thankful that they did though, because God really used that church and the people of that church to change my story Mm. and kind of like rewrite it. And it like, went from me like through my whole family and changed my wife around too in a really positive way so just a lot of really good things came out of that 
Well, that's awesome. So, so you are now uh, the worship leader there at Harpeth and uh, doing great. But let's let's rewind back to your childhood because um, I want you know I think that these types of stories are so helpful to people, especially for people who might be in a bit of a process of deconstruction themselves, but also for people who have loved ones and friends who are going through deconstruction and they're trying to understand what's happening to their friends and. Um, and you know your story. You like you mentioned. I'm glad you mentioned these blog posts you've been writing over at Renew.org. So if anyone's curious about reading more about Dave's story, he's been blogging about that at Renew.org. That's R-E-N-E-W.org. You can find his articles there. Um, but you mentioned that you you know you mentioned you grew up in Alabama in the South, and in your article, you know you you kind of bring out this sort of homogenous experience you had where it was ninety. 7% white, Southern Baptist, praise God and bless America, evangelical as it gets Alabama. I love that description. So set the scene for us. Uh, you know, How did you first come to faith? Do you think that it was a, a genuine conversion at that point? Or have you, I don't know if you've thought about that, but to walk us through your, your initial conversion as a child. Okay. I do think about that a lot, actually. I was thinking about it yesterday. Um, so my whole family... Um, they were Christians when I was growing up, and they still are. And uh, my dad, he was my band director, but he also would lead worship at that church occasionally. And so I just grew up in church, and I knew from early on that I wanted to be a Christian. And I remember trying to become one at six years old. Like we had a revival preacher come through, and I was like, I want to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. And you know, I raised my hand or I went down, I walked the aisle. That's what it was. Yeah. I walked down the aisle and we ended up in the back. This is probably one of my earliest memories. We ended up in the nursery. Me and the pastor, my mom and dad, we're all holding hands in a circle. And he's trying to lead me through the sinner's prayer. And he's like, you know, go ahead and ask Jesus into your heart. And I didn't know how to do it. And then he started kind of like walking me through it. And, you know, I was sort of repeating him. And then he kind of let me try to do it on my own and I couldn't do it. And mm. I just remember him looking at my parents being like, he's not ready. And like crushed me because I was oh. like, ah, oh, no. I just want to be a Christian so bad. I didn't even know. You don't know why, you know, as yeah. a six-year-old kid. But I remember waiting two more years and then I think it was at vacation Bible school when I was eight that I was like, it's now. You know, I know I believe this stuff and I'm ready. I'm old enough. I'm doing this thing. And so I said the sinner's prayer then and, you know, got baptized two weeks later. You know, not much changes in your life when you're an eight-year-old. I'm not sure what your kind of sin that you do consciously when you're an eight-year-old. Yeah. But I remember, like, telling people at school that I was a Christian and talking about God a lot. Um, but it was, like, around age 15 that I had my first instance of doubt. Mm. Like, I was just so scared that if I died— I would go to hell. And I was just like, did I really mean the prayer when I was eight years old? Did I say the words right? And blah, mm. blah, blah. I was so scared. So that night I hit my knees, you know, in my bedroom floor by myself and asked Jesus to save me, but I asked him to be my Lord. Mm. I was like, I, I want you to, I want to follow you in life, you know, from yeah. this point forward. 
So I don't really know which one of those two like counted as like the time that I like began the relationship with God. Yeah. I sort of think about, and as I'm telling this story to people that they were both kind of like steps, mm-hmm. you know, like steps forward in following Christ. But God really started changing me during that time period and shaping me into a leader in the youth group. I came out of my shell, you know, during the, the youth conferences and he was using me as a role model for younger kids and, so look back and see that like that's when I think like the Holy Spirit really started changing me and leading me. That would be like the key moment. But it wasn't until I was in college that I got baptized again. Okay. Because I was like, you know, I was sitting there um, listening to a preacher talk and he was just stressing about baptism. I can't remember if if he used the words like, you know, baptism actually was the normative way they did it in the Bible. I don't know if he said those words or not, but I just remember feeling the Holy Spirit in me just being like, you've got to do this. You know, mm. This is the next thing. And so I got baptized as a 21-year-old. And I'm really glad that I did that um, because now looking back, I'm like, that's such an anchor for me. Mm-hmm. You know, like... Um, everybody's susceptible to doubt, no matter like how far along you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how spiritual you are. And that moment, looking back, it's like, man, I knew what I believed. I knew what I thought. I knew what was real. Then I made that decision because I wanted to trust and follow Jesus. And his word promises me that he'll seal me when Mm -hmm. I do those things. And it's become such an anchor for me over the years. But that's kind of like the beginning of the story, you know, of how I came to know Jesus. Let me ask you, uh, so you're, you're, I, we're kind of going to lead up to your deconstruction here. Do you think that the way the sinner's prayer was presented to you might have been um, like a chink in the armor in a way that might have even contributed to your eventual deconstruction? I'm only asking because you said, uh, you know, I, I wondered if I had said the words right, almost like as if it was presented as if it was like this almost incantation or some kind of a magical spell you cast to magically become a Christian. And I know that a lot, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this lately as far as, I mean, obviously it's not wrong to pray and dedicate your life to Jesus, but I think sometimes it's presented like this formula that if you say these words, you know, make sure you say all these words in just the right way, um, you know, then that, I think that's what leads people to feel like they keep having to do it over and over and over again, just to be sure, you know, like just yeah. a little insurance. But but what do you, do you think that played any, any part in your eventual deconstruction looking back now? I do, because I think it was in college after I was baptized, um, maybe it was on the way out of college. You know, that's the hard part about writing these blogs, by the way, it's like the, the timeline timing. of everything. Oh, yes. Because it's like, I'm like writing from memory, but I'm also trying to remember how I, I felt. Right. You know, it's like not just remembering events, but like how they made me feel. Yeah. I'm working on like blog four or five right now, and I'll be writing stuff and I'll be like, wait, wait, wait. Like, but it, you know, <laughs> earlier on in like blogs one and two, I was writing this timeline. I'm like, that doesn't match up. So I got to like think through it all. Oh, I know. But the struggle is real though, because when I was writing my <laughs> book, we actually, I had to get on the phone with my editors. And thankfully, I was able to time things based on my kids' ages and my pregnancy. So I was able to know exactly, you know, the around the time. But I, before we actually mapped it out, I was like two years off on it. Like when I was trying to remember when it all happened, it's like the struggle is real for sure. Okay. I'm glad to know that because yes. I was thinking that yesterday. I was like, that's the thing I'm nervous about. Am I getting it all right? <laughs> um, so I think it was when I was like towards the end of my 
you know, three-year college uh, run that uh, I think it was my close friend, Matt, he was in Waverly with me that told me the sinner's prayer was something that was like just a couple hundred years old. And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, that, you know, that's, they didn't always do that. That's not how you became a Christian before. And it, like, that really, I think, was the initial shift or like the crack, as I keep saying in the, mm-hmm. in the blog, is I was like, wait a second, like all these men and women in my life that were like teaching me, they said these things so confidently from stage, right? Or from yeah. the pulpit. Yeah. Like, this is the way. And to find out that it was like relatively new, I was like, what in the world? And so, you know, in a good way, it made me start going all through the Bible to like find it. Mm. And, you know, the closest thing I could, I could find is in Romans about confessing um, Jesus as Lord. You know, that's like the closest thing. But I can't find the actual sinner's yeah. prayer yeah. in there. No, that's true. Like, I, there's a verse in Ephesians. The there's a verse in Ephesians where Paul talks about, like, may Christ dwell richly in your hearts. But there's not mm. really any sort of indication that you're supposed to pray that. He's more reminding the Christians that Christ is there. But there's yeah. not really this prescriptive thing to to pray this exact prayer in this way. So yeah, I can see yeah. why that would cause some doubt though, because you're thinking they're so confident about this. They act like they know, and then I'm I'm not finding that in the Bible or really even in church history. I can see that mm-hmm. why that would make you almost doubt everything else they were saying. Right. That was the beginning of it. I remember hearing around that time period too, like um people would say these words like a a uh true salvation they just kept saying it i kept hearing it somebody who is truly saved and i just kept echoing in my head like am i truly saved and i I was somebody who would repeat the sinner's prayer often you know i went on a uh i was a summer missionary one year to phoenix arizona this is like after my second year of college and um actually that's right when the uh doubts started coming in because it was like you know beginning of that year before the summer um, we had this conference and the people were signing up to be summer missionaries and I felt strongly that I needed to. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. I don't know what this means, but I'll do it. And I signed up. And then when I sat back down in our little group of our Baptist student union people, I just felt like this adrenaline rush, like through me, like God was saying, you need to tell these people that you're going to do this. And I just like fought it and fought it. Like, I'm not going to tell them. I'm, not, I'm That's not who I am. I don't just say, hey, look at me, I'm doing these awesome things for the Lord, you know, and I'm modest too. Like, I'm not going to do that. But I felt very strongly that I should. And I told them, and then I think it was like a month later that I, you know, I wrote about this in my first blog, that I went out to this empty parking lot that I had gone to, you know, over and over again in college and would just pray and look up at the sky and I could just feel God's presence all around me. And I went out there and I just like had this self-realizing moment and I couldn't feel God's presence. Like I just mm. felt alone. It was totally weird. And I remember that's when the doubt started. Like, is God real? You know, am I really a Christian? You know, it, he's got to be real, but maybe so. I'm not real. And maybe that's why I can't feel him. And then I would repeat that sinner's prayer. And mm. I was wrestling over and over with that. And I would reach out to like one person and they would just, the way they would react was bad, mm. you know, because people didn't deconstruct openly right. in the early 2000s that I knew of, yeah. not in the South anyways. People didn't talk about or celebrate doubts and questions and yeah. stuff like they do now. And so the reactions I got were like, 
you know, something's wrong with you. You know, me, you know, what's going on? Salvation is such a key part of everything. And if you're doubting it, there's something really wrong. And mm. some people were a little more gracious. They were like, you know, well, you're going to be okay that, you know, trust the word. But if you start doubting again, then, you know, you might want to get saved again. And wow. I was like, I don't want to get saved again because it's going to start that cycle all over again. Of mm. I did this big moment. And then a couple of years later, I'm right back where I was. And so leading up to the summer, I was thinking, I want to back out of being this summer missionary. Um, but I couldn't because I told everyone that I was going to do it. And I was like a big presence and leader in the Baptist Student Union. So I went and did it. And that summer, I just, I remember praying over and over again, the sinner's prayer, and then asking Jesus for assurance, like assure me of my salvation. And it was like, I would have nothing for like, you know, two or three weeks. And then all of a sudden I would have this crazy experience. Like I would be sitting out in a driveway and I don't recommend doing this because I don't think God always works this way, but he did this way for me. I was like, God, just give me a sign. And there was like this massive shooting star that went by. Mm. And then I was like, whoa, you know, <laughs> like, this is amazing. God's real. And that would help me coast for like a week or two. Mm. But I wouldn't feel God again for like two or three weeks. And then I want to have this other experience where I like really felt God's presence around me and comforting me. And then I wouldn't feel him again for a couple more weeks. It was really kind of strange. But that was like the beginning of the wrestling and the like thinking about my faith and kind of taking things apart and seeing what they mean and what they, how they fit back together kind of a thing. Um, but it all kind of started because I didn't feel God's presence and it scared me. And then the reactions of people around me were so yeah. weird. That's very similar. Shame. Yeah. This is, oh, creating shame. Yeah. That's huge because yeah. this is very similar to my story. And I write about this in my book where, you know, I never really went through intellectual doubt my whole life, but um, it was when I didn't feel God's presence that it was like the darkest time of doubt for me because I was always my whole life, no matter what I would be faced with, I could, I could, to you know, to the best of my description, I could say I felt God's presence. And then there was these times when it was like nothing, not a, not a goosebump, nothing. And it's kind of, you know, it's a dark place to be in when you feel that almost that empty void. Um, and, you know, looking back, I think in my story, I don't know how you would interpret this for your story, but I think that there, there are times when, when God, you know, orchestrates that. Uh, to make, mm -hmm. you know, almost in a way to make sure we're not just being led by our feelings. I, I know for me that totally. it's taught me to stand whether I feel him or not. Um, so so what what do you think were some other factors? Um, did Like, did you start to deconstruct at that point? Or were there other factors involved that led you into a deconstruction? Or let's let's talk about moving into that deconstruction point okay. and, and what that looked like for you and anything else you want to cover that might lead up to that point. So when I got back from the summer missionary trip, I felt like a new strength because you're right. I felt like God had orchestrated the whole thing because he kept showing up in these really miraculous type ways and stories through people and strangers, like echoing things I was going through and stuff like that. And I felt like God had orchestrated it and I came back and um, my faith was stronger than it was before. And, you know, I just kept uh, trying to push through, <laughs> I guess mm -hmm. you could say. And, um, but I, I kind of had this new sense of, you know, who God was and who I was and what faith was. Um, so that last year of college for me, is I became the president of the Baptist Student Union and I was the 
worship leader and I had my Christian pop punk band and all that kind of stuff. And at the end of that year, the semester, I guess, is when my band started touring. And that was the first time that we met Christians outside of the Southern bubble, the Bible Belt culture that mm-hmm. were like different, you know, like specifically um, coming to Nashville, you know, we met a lot of industry people, you know, <laughs> we came up here um, during the gospel music awards week and like, we weren't invited, but we just came up and <laughs> we snuck in one of the rooms and dropped our demo and all the bags. Nice. Like, we were just like, we've got to get their name out there. We what year was this? Like- what year was that? I can't remember what okay. year it was. But it was like before, um, it was before, it had to have been like 2004, 2005. I was probably there. I was probably <laughs> at probably that were. GMA week. <laughs> you probably were. We were like, you know, people weren't using like the internet to like market your right. band and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So we were like, we've got to do this the real way. Um, so, but we met some people when we came up here in the industry that um, were just different, like, you know, in the the third blog that I'm that'll be released this month in March is called the three unforgivable sins, drinking, smoking, and cussing. And we came up here and met some people that were like, you know, seemed like legit followers of Christ. Like they were passionate about justice and they were passionate about helping the needy and the poor. And, you know, they devoted time to like feeding you know, homeless people downtown Nashville and they talked, they kept talking about being liberated and mm. stuff like that. And then we went to hang out with them afterwards and we went to the Flying Saucer, which is like, you know, hundreds of beers and we're just Southern boys who grew up thinking you don't do that. And I was so shocked because they were all drinking and a lot of them were smoking cigars and some of them even said cuss words. We were just so, I was so freaked out, you know, I was the goody goody kid who didn't do that stuff. And, yeah. and I just knew that it was wrong. And, and I just, I couldn't piece together how somebody could be so loving and generous and wise. I mean, like the character of Jesus, just like that, but then do these things that I'd always thought were wrong. And it's, it's like, you can have a belief about something or about a people group, and then when you meet them and see like they're who they are, like they're so it kind of makes you kind of question like the beliefs versus the people. And the thing we say at our church a lot is um, when you're faced with stuff like that, you're either going to, um, how does he say it? You're going to end up giving up your beliefs or you're going to give up behaviors. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. And I think I was really wrestling with that. And I remember talking about it um, in our van on the way back to Mississippi, which is where our band grew out of. But um, I was like dead set. Like, we're not going to do that kind of stuff. You know, we started out to be a band that would be different because we'd had bad experiences with Christian bands. We're like, we want to be a band that's legit and, and uh, you know, doesn't lose sight of the gospel and stuff like that. And I was like, we're not going to be that way. But some of the other guys were kind of wanted to be that way a little bit, you know. <laughs> but slowly over time of touring out west and meeting more Christians that were like that, we started to evolve to look and sound more like that too. We started listening to different podcasts and reading different books that were saying things like that liberated theology. And it kind of like pressed on us that there wasn't as much emphasis on personal holiness. It was kind of like, you know, God knows your heart. I, I keep saying that as like this hermeneutic of progressive Christianity for me at that time, God knows your heart. So it doesn't really matter how you're living or what you're doing because God knows who you are and he loves you and he took care of you. And yeah. you just, it's all about how you love people. And that just started to shift for us 
and to kind of loosen our grip on, you know, sin really in our lives. Like, mm. you know, we weren't going to be quite as tight on that kind of stuff because it didn't matter. In fact, if we focused too much on that stuff, then you become super legalistic right. and then judgmental and blah, blah, blah. And so all that started shifting around that time period. And um, can you tell us books? Yeah, I was going to say, can you tell us like what some of the books were that you were reading and some of the podcasts you were listening to? If you don't want to name anything, that's fine. But um, just out of curiosity. So I was reading. So Rob Bell was a huge, you know, proponent of this in the beginning. His NUMA videos. Yeah. I mean, they're still incredible videos. Yeah. They like were mind blowing of how well they were produced and like the things he was saying. And um when I picked up Velvet Elvis, you know, shortly after Numa videos, I think that's the timeline is right. And uh, it's like the the book is so well written; it's so entertaining. Yeah, you he's don't a great realize, writer. Yeah, I, I still think he's an excellent communicator. Yeah, but I didn't realize that at the time what was happening was my hermeneutics, which I keep using that word. Do I need to explain what that is? To uh, the listener? Yeah, just just tell, you know, just for people who haven't heard that word, it's just, it's okay. the art of interpreting the Bible, right? It's just how we right. interpret the text. I don't mean to to speak down to anyone. I didn't know what that word meant either until like a few years ago. Oh, I didn't either. I had someone oh, teach yeah. me. No, that's why I, I always, always laugh at, yeah. <laughs> I always laughed at people that would use that word because I was like, that's a super nerdy word. But it really is just like, a, the way I describe it, it's kind of like a, a theological framework that we all kind of have that we're like sometimes a subconscious that we use to interpret the Bible when we're reading a text, how to interpret what the reader means. What those books like Velvet Elvis or Progressive Podcasts, I can't remember what they were back in that time period. Um, what they were doing was slowly kind of changing your hermeneutic. Like mm. one of my hermeneutics had always been, um, you know, God wrote the Bible, like they're his words. And over time, it shifted into humans wrote the Bible, which is true. But it's like God wrote the Bible through humans. But it can shift from God wrote the Bible to no humans wrote the Bible to no the Bible the Word of God is actually just human words about mm. God. Yes. And then all of a sudden, the authority is just gone. Yes. Right. Like yes, the Bible that's... has no authority in your life anymore. I really think that those books, the way that they question things, and the way that made me think about things started shifting that for me. Like, oh, mm. maybe, you know, maybe the things that Paul was saying, Apostle Paul was saying, you know, didn't have as much weight because, you know, Paul actually never saw, you know, the G- like Jesus, like Peter saw Jesus. So maybe what he is writing is more for like the cultural time. And then over time, you end up wiping away like tons of the New Testament. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like so much stuff. So, like that. Will, that's what was happening to me. But it was all like under the radar. Yeah. Like I, I had no idea that, that was shifting, but I knew that I felt more enlightened. That's the scary part. Mm. I felt more enlightened, and I would come home to the to Alabama to my parents and be like, "Y'all gotta listen to this." And I felt like this missionary, like I gotta help people that are stuck in you know evangelical Christianity, real judgmental people. I gotta help them kind of think outside the box and blah 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 blah. And they were all worried about me being like, "You shouldn't read this heretical stuff." And that actually made me want to read it more somehow. Like, <laughs> See how that works? Like, Funny how that works. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I was like, I'm not like these people anymore. Um, and so they hate this stuff. So this stuff might actually be really good for me. And just slowly over time of not reading scripture mm. and not being plugged into a local church where I had like 
somebody discipling me. And I wouldn't have even have known what that word meant when this was all happening. But, you know, growing up, I had my parents that took me to church and would disciple me from time to time at home. I had a youth pastor that was a great disciple maker. I had a counselor at, at college. It was part of being part of uh, the Baptist Student Union. You had to meet with him every week. He was discipling me. When I started touring, it was like, I can't go to church anymore because we're touring on Sundays, we're traveling mm-hmm. on Sundays. And I also didn't have anybody, an older, wiser, like mentor Christian in my life to help guide me and help me wrestle with these things. Yeah. And, you know, basically what was happening was me and the other four, so five guys in my band <clears throat> were discipling each other mm-hmm. in a weird way. We're talking about thoughts and feelings about what do you think about what the Bible says and what do you think about what that podcast said versus what did the author of that part of the Bible mean? Yeah. What does that yeah. say for you to do now? Like that, you see that how that's different? Yes. What do you think and feel about it's a it? Different versus, question. Yeah. And I and wonder too. That's what we were doing. I wanted to ask you too, because I know that like something you just said really resonates with me because I know that one of the things that made me vulnerable to uh, – now, my story is a, a bit different. I went through some deconstruction, but I never embraced progressive Christianity. I knew that, like, it was – now, I was I was definitely enticed by some of it. Like, I remember when you're describing how you were with Rob Bell. That's kind of how I was with Donald Miller and uh, some of those early books. I was just giving them out to everybody because it was just so revolutionary for me. And so yeah. definitely was, was enticed by it. But I think one of the things that made me so vulnerable to deconstruction was this whole touring life. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're in a different town every day. And like you said, you're gone on Sundays. I completely lost touch with the local church while I was touring. Didn't There wasn't a pastor who was aware of what was going on with me or holding me accountable to anything. And then you you come this is how it was for me. You you combine that with um just the way people kind of treat you when you're touring and whether they're obviously putting you up on a pedestal, you can see it in their eyes, or almost holding you to this impossible standard. It's kind of could could run the gamut of both those extremes. I didn't feel like I could open up to just the average mm-hmm. people I would meet in churches. I definitely felt like I had to keep a strong guard up with them because I felt like they were judging me or they were putting me on this pedestal that that I didn't deserve to be on. And I think that a combination of all of that plus just being on the road, it's a weird schedule. You, I, I struggled with depression. I, I kind of— I, I, I think there was a period of time when I just really wasn't reading the Bible anymore. And I think it all kind of came together as this perfect storm of uh, circumstances that made me vulnerable to to these this kind of deconstruction. I wonder if, you know, if if you had any experiences touring that were like that for you, where it's just these, this combination of weird life circumstances that could kind of make you vulnerable to this. Yeah. I mean, everything you just said— describes exactly my experience. It's hard yeah. to say it and articulate it, especially for people that haven't experienced it, but that's exactly the way it is. Like you feel like two different people mm. all the time. Yes. It's like, and you're not trying to like be fake or anything, but it's like you walk in and the people expect you to be a certain way. And that's just kind of who you are <laughs> yeah. in that moment. Kind of turn and, it on and, and it's not yeah. a, like you said. It's not like you're intending to 
uh, be this other person, but something does happen. It's just you you turn it on, and you even from a good heart. It's like you want to you yeah. want to to be a good representative of Jesus to these people. You you want to show them love, right. but I found my own heart getting really hard, kind of cynical and jaded totally. in a way when you when you go Very through that day after day. Yeah, yeah. It's weird to think back on like like who I was when we started. We we're like this bright new band. Like we're gonna do things differently. And then you fast forward like five, six years and you're just like the people that you d- couldn't understand before yeah. and thought, man, we're going to do it differently to them. It's just something about that lifestyle. And like, I really think it's because I didn't have anybody that would disciple me, or I didn't let anyone disciple me. Mm. And then, like you said, when you show up to a church, to a venue and they have these expectations of you, you can't really like open up to them like, what are they going to think? Are they going to be like, they never have your band back, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's like, I'm not like pretending to be something different. I just, I, I'm questioning all this stuff myself. So I don't want to wrestle with it with them. Like, right. cause I don't know, you know, I don't know what I'm believing anymore. And I don't know that yeah. person. Yeah. And I will say it, it's weird how you can pick up on when somebody else is deconstructing too. Mm. It's like this weird connection. You can like see it and you're just kind of like, you're also like me. Right. I remember that time period, which is so weird to think about because, like, terms like progressive Christianity, I wouldn't have known what that meant. Yeah. Yeah. Deconstructing, I wouldn't know what that meant, but you can yeah. sense it in somebody else and know that they're going through it too. And it kind of gave you some, you know, hope or whatever. But it's just crazy to think about like me and my band guys doing the thoughts and feelings. We're kind of just letting outside sources unknowingly disciple us through podcasts and books and things like that. And then we're also discipling each other away from historic Christianity, mm. like just totally going our own way and didn't realize it. Pretty scary. So when you were in progressive Christianity, um, again, like I think you just kind of answered this. You Would you have called yourself that or you just didn't realize that's what, what you were? I would have said I'm not an evangelical Christian anymore. Okay. But I don't think I would have known the language to say— I'm a progressive Christian. Yeah. Like, I may have said like liberal, like a more liberal Christian, yeah. like yeah, still love Jesus, love God, but a lot of my like core beliefs were different. So what were some of those core beliefs that changed for you? Oh man, you know, I haven't gotten to this part of the blog yet. So <laughs> <laughs> definitely the, the authority of scripture was leaving, you know, and, you know, by the time, by the end of it, it was like gone. Like I thought, like uh, I read somewhere that it doesn't, you know, Genesis doesn't have to be literally true for it to be metaphorically true or for there to be truth in it. So it doesn't matter if it's actually happened because mm-hmm. it's true every day. And it's like, oh, that sounds really good. You know, that actually makes sense. And I can stop believing in, you know, six day creation yeah. or I can stop believing in X, Y, Z and so that was one thing was the the literal six like the sixth day, you know that kind of got torn away. Um, premillennial dispensationalism. So as as I said in blog two, Kirk Cameron eschatology, yeah, like left behind, <laughs> left behind like, yeah, that fell away because I also same thing with the sinner's prayer, reading through Revelation. And I was like, where's the rapture? Like, did I miss it? You know, yeah, like that really kind of started to fall away. Um, I remember towards the end of it, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I was wondering why Jesus had to die. Mm-hmm. Like, why did he, what did he die for? Like, if we are created as good people, 
And if, you know, I've been diminishing like a pursuit of holiness, personal holiness, like if everything's good and if like, if in this universal thinking, like if everyone's going to end up going to heaven anyways, why did Jesus die? And why mm. did scripture say, you know, this was like, you know, God, you know, wrote this, you know what I mean? Like this happened because it was his plan. And there's even some more like graphic versions of that, you know, like, um, I can't think of the verse, but it's like, um, it like please God or like God had to punish or put the punishment on Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Is yeah, that's it. The will Isaiah. of the Lord to crush him. Yes. So it's like, what does that mean? And, and it just started to make me think these things were just written by, you know, barbaric people who mm. didn't understand that God is love. And like, I don't know if you can hear like what's underneath that is those people don't understand God like I do because or don't understand Jesus like I do because I'm such more an enlightened person now. And, you know, one of the things that was a huge and rude awakening for me when uh, I was being discipled by Bobby before I officially became staff at, at Harpeth was um, he said, uh, who better to know what Jesus meant or what, who Jesus was than the men that were actually with him. And I was like, oh. and it just like, it hit me at that moment that I had been setting my own intellect over what they thought and meant, you know, yeah. the, and I'd been distrusting the apostles. It, it just kind of blows my mind that I got into that place. Wow. You know? So if somebody would have asked you when you were in that state, what is the gospel? What do you think you would have answered? How would you have described the Christian gospel when you were sort of in this progressive Christian deconstructed state? That... Jesus came to show us how to love people. That was about it. Did you it's think, like, so you were universalist. So you were thinking about the afterlife. Everyone will be saved. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought that. I thought everybody would eventually end up there yeah. somehow, some way. Like, how can a loving God make the story where people actually go to hell? Why would he do that? Like, you know, I wouldn't do that. And you start kind of using anthropomorphism mm -hmm. on God, like, I wouldn't do that as a father. I would never, you know, blah, blah, blah with my son or with this or that person. So there's no way that God could do that. Yeah. And just disagreeing with scripture. Mm. So your reconstruction is just, it gives me so much hope because this is a situation where, you know, we, I, I know Bobby, your pastor, and we're friends. And, you know, when, when Bobby emailed me about you, he was just like, you know, we, this is one, I disciple him and, he was in Progressive Christianity. Of course, I had heard your story at the the Renew uh, one of their promo uh, videos that they made that was that was so powerful. But it's a really powerful story, and it's a testament to the Great Commission: go and make disciples. And essentially, I love this. So you you go apply for this job, you lay it all on the table. You're really honest about your sin struggles. You're honest with where you're at, and and Bobby is like. This person is teachable. I'm going to disciple this guy. So walk us through that. What was that like? What were the conversations like? Because um, I think this is probably something that we can all learn from. Uh, just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just how long did that take? Or, or just walk us through that. So it took a couple of years. And Bobby was super intentional with me. So he would like, you know, call me. Hey, can I come by your house? And like me and my wife, Summer, were not quite 
at the social place <laughs> where we were like just letting people coming over. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, this is weird. Like, why, why does he want to come over to my house? And I'd be like, no, you know, now's not really a good time. He's like, well, come over to my house. And then I'd be like, okay, you know, I'll go hang out with Bobby. Really just being intentional about us being in a relationship together. Like becoming friends, you know? Yeah. But as we would talk, and we would talk a lot about just whatever. He'd be really interested in what movies I wanted to watch on Netflix and what books I was reading and like just, you know, normal stuff. We talk about normal stuff. And then naturally it would just come up and he would, you know, I, either I would bring it up or he might ask a question and, you know, ask me what I thought about this, you know, like I remember he took me to a hockey game and it was just a random thing. He was just like, Hey, you don't want to go to a hockey game tonight. And I was like, sure. I'd love to go watch the Preds. That'd be great. And so we went and we just talked about whatever on the way. And before I knew it, we were sitting there in the stands talking about revelation and eschatology and thoughts on the end. And, you know, I shared to him what I thought and he was like, you know, that's, you know, that's a valid point. Like there's scholars that think that way, even though it might be different than what he thought. Um, but he just would ask me that. And then usually come around with a question that really made me think. So I would get home and like be thinking about what he had said. And one of the first ones was about, um, you know, trusting the Bible. Cause I, I told him I, wasn't sure how we got the Bible. Like, mm. You know, was it, I admit, like, I don't know if I made this up or heard somebody say it, but I created this story in my mind where it was like, you know, men were sitting around the table, cherry picking what supported the narrative of, you know, Jesus as the son of God and tossing out the ones I didn't. That's what I made up in my mind. So I had kind of a distrust for the authors of the Bible and he really, would show me like archeological evidence and, and talk me through like why we know these are legit copies um, written by the apostles and how we actually got these letters. Um, they weren't just like cherry picked, but they, the church was already using them as like authoritative scriptures. And then that's how we pieced them together. And I was like, Oh, and he really helped me get my attention towards like the first church. Like what were they doing? What were they thinking? How are they behaving? What were they believing about these things? And kind of kind of retold me the true narrative about how we got the Bible and how we can trust it. And we talked about, you know, um, Jesus and the apostles, Jesus and Paul, how, you know, Paul went out to the desert and he came back and was, you know, writing these things that lined up with the other apostles, but stuff like that, like piecing yeah. together and just kind of like the miracle that God had made to create, to give us the Bible that we have. And he started to firm up my trust mm. in the, the words of scripture again, but it was all in forms of questions. And then when I would come to him, when, once I felt like safe with him, yeah, I would come to him and be like, you know, I'm really wrestling with like, you know, um, like this male leadership thing. Like, you know, where do we get that? Well, you know, why does historic Christianity think that? And he would walk me through scriptures and we would talk about it and, Bobby's so knowledgeable. He's so good at like pulling apart, you know, Greek and stuff and showing me kind of what was yeah. going on behind or the context. And so that's kind of what it looked like. So just to sum that all up, I know that was all splattered everywhere, but no, it's no, like, this is really it good. Yeah. And it was very intentional. Yeah. And, but it was also super organic. So it's like, yeah, it's like, I'm going to take Dave to a hockey game, but I'm going to make sure that I bring up stuff. I'm going to bring up some stuff about scripture and, press him a little bit and he would always let scripture 
do the cutting away in my heart. He never personally was like, you need to change your thinking on that. It was all the Holy Spirit. Wow. Bobby was just the one going, here's the word. And here's why you can trust it again. And I'm getting chills thinking about it. That's exactly what happened. The Holy Spirit was the one that did all the changing in my heart. But Bobby was just the one being faithful in having the hard conversation, having asking the hard question and letting it be silent and awkward while I thought about it. I love that. It sounds like when it sounds like the first step was that you felt genuinely respected and loved. Yeah. Before you he know, totally, yeah. He totally respected what I thought and and he understood he wanted to understand. He kept saying that I wanna I wanna understand how you think. I want to understand how you got to where you were. And it's like as you're like saying this stuff out loud even to your own mind, you're like, is that right? You know, like <laughs> you're like being exposed to truth. Yeah. It's not a good feeling. Like, you know, I still to this day when I, when I feel God pulling me to the next step, I'm like, oh, man, like, am I, am I have not arrived already, God? <laughs> it's like, yeah. I go through these series of like, you know, deconstructing again. Yeah, like deconstructing the, your deconstruction. Exactly, in a way. <laughs> deconstructing the progressive Christianity that I reconstructed wow. on my own. I've had to deconstruct and reconstruct, but the healthy way to do that is with somebody who's older and wiser in the faith than you are yeah. to help you. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, not only did you feel respected and loved, but when you had questions, Bobby is an apologist. He's a philosopher. He's got such a, like you said, such a wide knowledge base. I think that's such a great example for us all to think about is as we have friends who might be going through deconstruction or in some kind of place of progressive Christianity, it's like we have to start with love and respect and genuine curiosity about mm -hmm. what they're thinking, why they're thinking that. We're not just asking those questions so that we can throw a zinger, you know, but right. when those things come up, we we have to know some things. We have to we have to study as Christians so that we can help other people uh, when they're when they have questions and just like Bobby being ready to explain to you how we got the Bible, why why the manuscript transmission process was reliable. Uh, he he had that knowledge base inside so that when it came up, he was and and I think too, when you really know, when you've really studied, it makes you a lot less fearful in presenting the information. Totally. Because if you just know a little bit, you can there can be this temptation to kind of gloss over things or react a little bit in fear. But when you really have that deep knowledge, you know that even if you give a little bit of an answer, and then the person asks more, and then you can give more of the answer. It gives you such a confidence. And I think that your story in particular is just, it just, it gives me so much hope in just the whole discipline of apologetics and evangelism and discipleship and how all of those things work together. And it's such a beautiful story. And in a moment, we are going to continue our conversation on our Patreon-only page. And so if you're watching this or listening to this today, and you want to hear more from Dave, and, and we're going to dig down into some other questions about how we can do what Bobby did for him better for the people in our lives who are going through things like this. Um, you can listen to that conversation. Go over to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. There are several different tiers you can choose from to support. You can get the monthly ministry update video. All the levels get that. You can level up for things like early access, bonus content that we're going to record right now with Dave. Uh, we have a Facebook group. There are gifts. There's all kinds of different things you can check out at patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. But Dave, as we close out this segment of our conversation, 
What I, I want you to leave our viewers and our listeners with some hope because, and, and I've asked other people a similar question, and I just think it, it'd be great to get your perspective on this. But one of the most common emails I receive through my website is basically um, parents like older, maybe uh, people more like my parents' age, emailing me saying, my adult child is deconstructing, they don't believe in Christianity anymore, or they have deconstructed into a type of progressive Christianity. I don't know what to do. What do I do? What advice would you give to to parents who have uh, adult children who are in this process themselves? What, what, what are some things to be sure and do and some things maybe to be sure and avoid doing? Okay. I think first off, because um, sometimes you can't like be prepared for when somebody's yeah. deconstruct it just kind of happens and then they might share it with you as they're in the middle of it is to like not um you know over respond like mm. with fear or anxiety and you don't want to under respond either you know it is important but it's like the most helpful things in my life with counselors and just good friends were people that were like okay i, I get it you know i understand and they're not surprised and they're not scared for you or of you, if mm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, and I know that that's a hard thing to do because you, especially if it's your kid, like you don't want them to go so far away from historic Christianity that they just walk away totally from it. And you're, they're in danger of missing out of heaven. You know, yeah, that's like the yeah. ultimate fear is to trust God through it and, you know, not be surprised when you're responding with them and then just start studying for yourself, you know, things that you can help them with. Cause you know, like Elisa just said, that was super helpful that Bobby restored my trust in how we got the Bible. So it's, I think it'd be helpful to like know um, some of the like main things of progressive Christianity, like the main beliefs and or hermeneutics or whatever it is and, and learn the, the real version, the real answer to that. So like, how did we get the Bible? Most progressives would think, it was just cherry picked together and it was lost in translation and what we have now doesn't what isn't the real thing and so it just totally like disregard scripture and there's no authority there anymore helping them practically um restoring their faith and trust in scriptures is super important so i'd say studying up on the truth and being intentional in your conversation and you can't be overbearing. It's like <laughs> you need to to bring it up so organically that they may not even realize what you're doing. Like yeah. kind of like sneaky. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like ask what they're watching on Netflix. <laughs> Start there. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Take a hockey game and, and be like, you know, what are you thinking about this or whatever? And you know, I've I've always had a hard time when I'm asking questions to people of them feeling like that I'm, I'm accusing them or interrogating yeah. them. So I've tried to watch out for that when I'm asking questions to just genuinely be curious. What do you think about this? I want to know. Yeah. And just good. let them talk. Yeah. Well, those are some wise words. If you're uh, listening to this on iTunes, it would really help us out if you leave a good review for us. It helps get the message out to more people. And if you're watching on YouTube, subscribing, clicking that bell icon helps because that gives you notifications every time we release a new video. Also, liking and commenting helps with algorithms. It's just the way the world is now. So it definitely helps us out if you leave a comment uh, or like a post wherever you see this to get it, the word out to more people. I want to thank my guest today, Dave Stovall. And I know you've been blessed by this conversation. And we'll see you next time.